Welcome to CT Startup Podcast, an inside perspective to the Connecticut startup ecosystem. This is Eric Francis. Dave Bernard from North Carolina. And we have with us today Mike Cacuzzo of EnviroPower, a startup focusing on some energy stuff. So he'll, uh, he'll go into that a little bit more. I, I'll fumble over it. Mike, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me here. Mike, so I think, I think the code word that we talked about before is cogeneration. That's it, cogeneration, right? So um, EnviroPower is a, obviously we're a small startup company, but we're focused on some pretty big goals. We're, we're focused on bringing cogeneration to small-scale buildings, such as uh, commercial or residential. And what that is is a single device that will provide both electricity and heating for that establishment. So if you can uh, generate uh, electricity on site and recover all that wasted heat and use that uh, to actually provide the heating, you know, domestic hot water, or here in Connecticut, you know, we've got uh, some pretty cold, long winters, uh, we can actually provide the heating for your, your residence uh, or your office building, and uh, we'll reduce your overall electric bills, and it's actually really good for the environment. It reduces greenhouse gases. So we're, we're an energy company, and we're just getting our start, and um, again, we're focused on small-scale uh, power generation. So I have a boiler in my house, and I obviously use electricity to start up the boiler. Uh, it generates heat, and the cogeneration device would essentially capture some of that heat and turn it into more electricity? So the, the device would actually replace or supplement uh, the, the boiler that you already have. Mm-hmm. So it would work um, almost like the, the engine in your car, right? We're not using uh, internal <clears throat> combustion, but if you think about it, it, it runs. Uh, it uses a, a fuel, natural gas, or um, diesel, or propane, and uh, we can therefore create the electricity. Instead of putting it in a radiator like a car does, uh, we would do exactly like your boiler does. We provide hot water and uh, you can use that as domestic hot water or use it to heat your home exactly like your boiler does. So when you think about this device, it's the footprint of a boiler. You just get electricity as well. That sounds great. So I would have to replace the boiler or add it to it? Uh, you could replace the boiler or you can leave it uh, your, your existing heating system as a supplemental uh, heating system as well. Okay. And so how long have you been working on this? I know you were at UConn a while ago. So I started on some similar ideas at UConn um, probably five, six years ago now. Um, I worked with some other startups um, working, again, on similar ideas for the automotive industry. um, And I started to develop this concept um, for CHP, uh, which is what Combined Heat and Power is called in the industry, um, probably about three and a half, four years ago. And I started in Power just over three years ago. So... It's been several years. Um, we've gone through uh, an alpha residential prototype, uh, so I've hooked it up in my home and we, we got it working. Um, and then recently, uh, we've we've developed one for the commercial market, which is what we're looking to uh, go after first. Great. And what kind of uh, interest have you received? Uh, so we've we've actually gone out to several utilities, and um, there were benefits that we thought uh, that we didn't even know about. Uh, beyond the end user, where utilities actually are, are shifting more to a distributed generation um, grid. And so uh, they're looking at, you, you know, as renewables come onto the grid more and more, uh, there's a larger focus about um, generating electricity at the point of use rather than at a central plant. And so um, there's incentive for the utilities to actually put this type of technology onto the grid. So we've got a commitment from uh, from a u- utility in Massachusetts to, to actually install this, to run it, so we can get our first... Uh, uh, test data. We've uh, we've attracted a small angel investor that we've raised um, 
a little over $150,000 so we can build our, our what we'll call our beta commercial unit. And uh, right now we're finalizing all the, the, the design and testing and hopefully in the next several months we'll have it in the field and uh, actually be able to get field validated test results. Nice. So so it sounds like you went from uh, kind of just tinkering around uh, with, with your system at your house to, to building a company. Is that is that right to say or what? Yeah, I kind of I kind of fell into creating a company, right? I was, uh, graduated UConn with an engineering degree, and I was always fascinated at uh, at creating stuff. Uh, even since I was a little kid, I was uh, I'd get a new gift, and the first thing I would do is take it apart. Um, you know, my parents yep. were always thrilled about that. So I, I created this cool product, and I said, okay. Um, you know, if I really want to make an impact here, I've got to I've got to change hats here and, and actually start a company and, and figure out what that takes. And uh, when you're creating um, any sort of manufacturing product, let alone a heating product that has um, multiple layers of regulation, um, there, there's much more to it than just creating uh, a prototype. Yeah. What kind of regulation do you, do you have? I mean, it was, is it a, that big of a barrier to entry, or is it just a hassle? So the, the states and each state and town um, have different local codes that, that uh, a piece of heating equipment has to um, uh, apply to, and um, they, they're usually governed by ASME standards. So the, the heat exchanger inside, um, to get pretty technical, the heat exchanger inside your heating equipment has to be welded correctly, has to be made out of the correct material. And so we have to follow all of those standards. We have to apply to national um, boiler codes. Um, and, and it's quite a complicated process. And then on the flip side, you also, because we have electronics on there and because it's going to be installed in residential applications, we have to look at SEC standards. We also have to um, uh, be third-party tested by UL or uh, a similar organization. So there's multiple layers that you have to go on to, and it goes all the way down um, to the to the town level, and, and then the state level, and then the, the country level on top of that. So that's kind of like the building codes, how like we're, we're in 2016, but the building codes at a certain town might be in like 2009. Is, uh, it, is, is that how, like it's different for each town? Is there like a certain standard that everybody goes by and they have to catch up each town and see? City. Yeah, there's. They, that's actually pretty funny. You bring something like that up. Uh, Massachusetts, um, their their boiler codes follow ASME standard from 1997 or even before then. So really? yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. So there's. Uh, you, you can create a product that meets newer national codes, but specifically, if you wanted to target installations in Massachusetts, it has to meet those standards too. And and they're not they're not uh, drastically different. But for instance. Um, I believe there's like a, a 0.2 boiler horsepower difference, you know, from a technical standpoint, which means you just have to rate your product uh, a little bit lower or change it specifically if you want to sell, you know, in Massachusetts. So, no, so if you went by 2016 standards, you have to like lessen the product standards <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to, to install in uh, Massachusetts? Yeah, yeah or, or flip-flop, right? If I, have to, if I wanted yeah. to, to install to Connecticut 2016 to go to Massachusetts, <laughs> yeah. I've got to go backwards. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny. So what are some of the, uh, you know, travails or setbacks you've had to deal with along the way? Travail, that's a good one. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> I had to say it. Yeah, so, so right from, from an engineering standpoint, we've, we've had tons of them, right? I've, I've probably had some, some close calls with gas that I, I would not like to admit myself, <laughs> where uh, now I make sure everyone stands 10 or 15 feet back when viewing, viewing our prototypes. But um, you I'm the most, same way with Indian food. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, from a business development standpoint, um, we've had some some significant setbacks. So I originally, um, the, the, the internal workings of our system uses a, a small turbine that I've had to source uh, from a company in, in um, overseas. And um, 
while while uh, while my first few prototypes, I was able to easily source that. Um, uh, I put together a small go-to-market strategy. We um, we found an angel investor, and I said, okay, uh, with this with these funds, uh, we're going to potentially start testing the market. And uh, about three or four months after we, we closed on the funding, um, there was a, a supply issue where the suppliers uh, actually signed an exclusive uh, licensing deal to another company trying to build a similar product to mine. And I was actually cut out of being able to buy the core component that I just told the investors I was trying to buy. So, um, you know, we we kind of scrambled at that point. We said, okay, well, what are we going to do? Um, there were no other, at the time, off-the-shelf um, components to actually replace this uh, electrical generator that that we were that we were using. Um, so, you know, we did what uh, what any startup would do, and we we pivoted and we went out. And uh, right now. I'm in discussions with the with the generator manufacturer to hopefully partner and help us design our, our next um, our next what I'll say electrical generator for this product, which is actually going to be more efficient. It's going to be more robust, and it's uh, overall actually going to give us a much better product to go to the market with. We'll be able to span um, several different uh, market verticals that we couldn't with the last product. So uh, it it was a huge, um, I would say. You know, hurdle that we had to get over, but once we did, it made us stronger as a startup. And I think it speaks to to small uh, startup companies that you can pivot early on and and actually be more successful. And so, um, those are just some of the issues that we faced. <laughs> That's actually pretty interesting. And I mean, like you said, you you turned a, a negative into a positive, right? I mean, after at the end of the day, you, you're going to have a better product because of this. Yeah, and, and I think that's all you can do. Um, I mean, you, you, you really, uh, the key to, to any startup is being resilient. And um, you're going to run into, if it's not this, there's there's another issue. There's a regulation. There's uh, You have to be agile and resilient to, to want to start an endeavor like this. Because if you're not, um, you, you, it's just, it's actually easier to pack it up and go get a full-time job doing something else, right? So... Well, I have the uh, privilege of, of mentoring up at the Innovation Quest uh, incubator and program at UConn uh, in stores, and and the uh, head, the the person who leads the program from UConn is a professor by the name of Richard Dino, uh, and he always starts it off every year saying that uh, life for an entrepreneur is like the old Chumba Wumba song: I get knocked down, <laughs> but I get up again. Um, and increasingly every year, the saying is a little bit more dated, but it still applies, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, absolutely. So, so when you're talking to students, nobody remembers who Chumbawamba is anymore. Yeah. But uh, fun, fun fact about Chumbawamba, the band that uh, I listened to a podcast called uh, Surprisingly Awesome, and they talked about how Chumbawamba, the band that started it, was like an anarchist group, like literally an anarchist group from England. And that they were, uh, they like found like an abandoned house one, you know, years ago in the 80s or 90s or whatever, and uh, they basically just, like, just stayed there for years. And they, like, took it over and everything, but they were an anarchist group. Like, their their whole plan was to become, like, you know, take down the the, <laughs> the government, stuff like that. And then Chumbawamba, they became a hit. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I like this podcast, huh? You get, you get updated music. Actually. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, yeah. I, I, before the podcast, Mike, you mentioned that you're afraid of going off on tangents. Obviously, that's not a problem. Yeah, so, no, yeah. Welcome, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to CT Startup, your music and movie and other listening experience <laughs> exactly. podcast. Yeah, maybe we'll talk to some entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so what uh, what made you uh, start this in Connecticut? I mean, was it just because you went to UConn? I mean, you're, are you from the state? So. 
Yeah, so uh, I grew up in Connecticut. I uh, moved here when I was about four, um, and you know, I went to University of Connecticut. That's where I graduated. Um, you know, I worked for uh, Pratt Whitney when I first got out uh, of college, and then uh, another company located in Connecticut had bought a house. Um, you know, my family's from here, so I decided to, to stay in Connecticut. But it, it, it's a very interesting question when when you look at and ask an entrepreneur why in Connecticut, um, because it's very tempting to look at uh, what's north of us and what's south of us, and and the investment culture um, that exists in Boston, in New York City. Um, the, the company that we're trying to start uh, to be successful is going to have to go through several rounds of funding in the multi-million dollars, Series A's, potentially Series B's, if not through acquisition. Um, and, and although Connecticut, there, there's a lot of people that have gone through that, and there's a lot of mentorship mm-hmm. there, there's, there's not too many vehicles yet that can, that can provide that, uh, that avenue of capital um, for you. And so uh, I've been actually part of some incubators and accelerators in Boston, uh, the Clean Tech Open. It's the largest mm-hmm. clean tech um, accelerator in the country. And, you know, we made it to the semifinals and uh, you get in a room and it's, you know, three of the top five Fortune 500 companies that are looking for innovation. It's the largest law firms in, in Boston. And they're sitting there telling you how to put together a business plan and showing you how to um, um, you know, bring your product to market, how to raise capital, how to be successful. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie to, to say it's not tempting to, to go up to Boston to go to their Greentown Labs. But I, I, I think I'm fortunate enough that I have found um, some pretty amazing partners to, to come and help me develop um, the business side of this who have done it themselves in Connecticut and know the, the unspoken avenues of, of how to um, get at least to test your product into the marketplace if we're on to a right idea and then and then secure the capital to do that. And we've proven success by raising a small angel round and we're in discussions to, to potentially raise um, another, uh, um, I'd say not quite a Series A, but um, a, a larger angel round of capital to actually uh, get a certified product into the marketplace. It's always one of the biggest problems Connecticut faces. It's, it's not that there's not companies here. Um, there's deal flow if people take the time to look. Um, but, you know, our largest investor in Connecticut is a quasi-public agency. Um, and no, nothing against uh, Connecticut Innovations, but, you know, your, your largest in- investor should not be the government. It should be private, in, you know, private venture capital funds, private equity funds, individuals. Uh, and there's plenty of money here in Connecticut. So... The key is, is, you know, one of the things we face as a community is getting, first of all, letting people inside and outside Connecticut know what's going on here, showing them that, the, that there's active communities. And, and even though they're sort of spread out, there's really separate but full active communities in, in Hartford and stores, in New Haven and Bridgeport and down in Stamford. Uh, and each of those deserves a certain amount of attention because there's great companies that are going unrecognized that deserve funding. Um, and so, I mean, that's certainly one of the hopes, the only reason why we started this podcast was to hope to bring attention to companies. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree. And, and <coughs> Connecticut has some of the largest pools of wealth in, in the entire world, yeah, right? right? But, but those pools don't know how to play the risk game. And that's, that's really what the, the, the startups that, that need the funding that, that can't, can't really attract the, the um, you know, the higher investment banks to come in on them yet. They, it, it's, it's a risk game. You, you need to, have enough companies that we're going to say, okay, maybe 80% of these fail or 90% of these fail, but the 10 that don't are going to be successes. And we just don't have that uh, set up as as an established um, queue 
uh, for the investor and for the, the companies to get into it. But I, I, I am encouraged by you know, podcasts like this and, and everything that I'm starting to read that Connecticut is, is realizing that if we don't get on board, we're going to lose innovation because we've got some of the best universities and some of the brightest people in this state um, that, that, that can create changing companies. Yeah. So I, I do not go on another tangent, but I, but, but it, it sort of leads right into, um, the discussion about equity crowdfunding. Uh, we're recording this podcast on Friday, May 13th. On Monday, May 16th, the equity crowdfunding rules go into effect. So these were approved by the Jobs Act back in 2011. The SEC kind of sat on them, uh, and they came out with rules last fall and they finally go into effect. So on Monday, the first, uh, web crowdfunding portals where people are going to be able to Anybody, not just what we call accredited investors, not just wealthy people, but anybody are going to be able to buy stock of, you know, likely some startup and yet some also uh, more uh, growth stage companies online through dedicated web portals. Uh, the the first portal that was approved by FINRA is called CrowdfundStar. Um, I think it's crowdfundstar.com. Um, we won't know what it looks like until Monday. Uh, and we, on Monday, we'll find out some other portals that have been approved by, by FINRA or the SEC. But the, uh, you know, I'm hoping that that brings, you know, there's a lot of both potential and danger in crowdfunding. I mean, it's in some ways, it's better than Kickstarter. Instead of giving a donation and hoping to get a T-shirt or maybe a finished product out of it or something, um, you'll actually be able to own a piece of a company. And you're entitled to receive some benefits and dividends, or if they sell, get a piece of that sale. Um, and and that's you know one of the one of the things that people always talk about with Kickstarter was sort of the cocktail party effect, which was the, the oh yeah I invested in that because I wanted to be able to say I invested in that. I want to be able to tell people I invested in it. You know, so I I was one of the first investors in Pebble or or one of the other large uh, Kickstarters. Or I was investor in the uh, what was it the was it Victoria Mars movie? Veronica Mars, the Veronica yep. Mars movie, you know, or something like that. Um, you, you invested in that? No, uh, but, but I'm just saying you, you could say that. Um, I, I actually haven't seen it, and I, I, I kind of have to. That's uh, I, I did see the TV show. So, um, but uh, you know, but now you actually be able to like you get a stock certificate. You can you can show it off in your home. You can just do whatever. But just say, you know, hey, I was there. Uh, so. You know, and because it opens it up to so many more people, it's just a huge amount of, it's just a whole new market of capital that wasn't available before. And there are limitations on what people who make less than 100,000 a year can invest, but it's still, they can. Um, and there's a lot of people who do that. So, uh, I, anyways, I, I'm kind of hoping that that becomes, uh, an avenue for Connecticut companies to raise some seed capital. There's, there's a max raise of a million dollars per 12 month period. Um, so you can raise up to a million every 12 months. Uh, and there are some dangers and, and, you know, you have some SEC filing requirements you have to follow if you get money and you have to, uh, you know, and then you have a bunch of shareholders and they're not known to you. So you, you have to become a CEO pretty quickly for a young company. You have to deal with, you might have a couple hundred unknown shareholders and, and you have to communicate with them and give them information and everything. Um, and give them the right to vote on certain things. And so, you know, without getting into too much detail, it's just the, there are challenges, but it could also be a great way for people to, to not only raise money for the company, but to do it in a way where they're not giving up control. Um, or being forced to take on, uh, new board members who have their own agendas. So it's a, it, you know, which can be good or bad. Some companies need to give up control. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, anyways, it could be a very exciting time. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree, and um, I think equity crowdfunding, um, you know, has has the right potential. I just, uh, I I feel like it's, it might go through some growing pains, right? Um, you're, sure. You're going you're going to always find people that learn how to exploit the system, and um, I mean, you know, with with the advancement of of how the breadth of the internet, right? YouTube makes makes stars out of people instantly, and and therefore, um, if you put together a clever marketing scheme, what what pe- appeals as a, a potential uh, credible team, um, you just raised a million dollars easier than buying maybe a scratch ticket to, to do yeah. that. So, um, I I. I I think they put a lot of work in, into the regulations. I don't think the regulations are over yet, but uh, similar like to, to the penny stock, um, you know, penny stock market, the OTC markets, um, you can put together a public company pretty easy and say that you're working on the world's, you know, newest, greatest invention, and you just raised $20 million, and your stock went from $1.50 to, you know, a tenth of a cent over the 18 months, and the CEOs and the CTOs paid themselves, you know, $400,000 a year, to put out press releases that they're trying to, to develop something. So yeah. it's it cer- certainly the biggest risk is fraud, right? It, it's, it's the, you know, and, and, and it's interesting because that's what the SEC was created to stop. It was created out of the, out of the Great Depression to stop fraud. And, and here we are, um, you know, 80 years later saying, okay, now we want you to put together regulations for a whole area that kind of loosens all of your ability to prevent fraud. And that's why it took them five years to put together the regulations. And, and the way we do things in the U.S. is much more laissez-faire than in certain other countries uh, that have equity crowdfunding. I mean, in the U.S., we tend to draft laws, send them out there into the ether, see what happens, wait for a few lawsuits to happen, and then and then draft amendments to the laws. Um, whereas, you know, there's there's been equity crowdfunding in the United Kingdom since I think 2012. Uh, I think it was uh, CrowdCube was uh, the first equity crowdfunding platform there, and. As far as I understand it, basically the government basically almost effectively sat in their offices and said, "Don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up." Kind of, <laughs> kind of like the, uh, kind of like the guy who would whisper into the Roman emperor's ears as he walked back in from conquering another country, like you know, you you will you will eventually die, you know, your your life will be dust. This is nothing to, to keep their ego down. You know, it's, I think they basically the government sat there and said. Don't screw up. Make sure you vet every company. And if you screw up, you know, we're going to screw you up, basically. And that's and they've had very successful equity crowdfunding platforms since then. Uh, you know, in the U.S., again, we're a little bit more laissez-faire uh, about that. Um, so there probably will be some instances of fraud. And you're right. I'm sure there will be instances of uh, revising the regulations and rules. I I. However, I don't see the market closing. Like once that door is open, oh, no. yeah, I don't I think you can get it back. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And I, you brought up a good point where um, the the uh, platforms are responsible for um, for the companies, and they can curate the companies that are on there. Now you may say, okay, well, there's going to be preference, but if you can hold responsibility to the platforms, there's going to be some accountability there. Um, and and I think uh, over time. You'll you'll get winners and you'll get losers, and that will that will actually um, you know create the the platform for success is having these platforms be able to uh, to curate their own, and uh, and then you'll 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 get the average Joe saying yeah I invested on this platform, and they'll start to trust that the the companies there are more credible companies. Obviously, it's still a risk, but uh, right. I, I think you'll start to see that over time. 
Well, I think platforms, or or they're called portals, I think a portal's reputation is going to matter so very much. you know, as portals develop, you know, I could go to a generic portal, like something I've never really heard about, like Crowdfund Star, to be honest. Um, or I could, if I knew a portal, if I want to invest in pharmaceuticals and I knew there was a portal that focused on that and the people who run it were experienced in the pharmaceutical industries and they were vetting the companies and that they thought these were good bets and they were to, and the portal was taking some equity in that company as well. Yeah. Then, then maybe, maybe, maybe much more likely to invest with them. It's, it, it seems still a bet, but it seems like a more well vetted bet. Um, so I, I think you know portals that are siloed or have effective management are a, you know it's going to be important. Yeah, yeah. Actually, for instance, I, I came across um, uh, a VC firm that their whole uh, concept was they would only invest if the company had a uh, position to to offer a uh, crowdfunding. Um, opportunity. So generally, if you could put a product on Kickstarter, right, and show that there's market pull for your product, then they would uh, they would invest the yeah. other the other portion of it that would take you know to to get the company off the ground. That's and, interesting. And I think you'll probably see a lot of VC firms say, okay, if there's market pull from you know a, a crowdfunding type aspect, we'll be the other match to it. Well, see now that that's interesting because I was kind of wondering whether the opposite might happen, and and I'm not certain this, but. You know, so the crowd, equity crowdfunding doesn't really compete with VCs in terms of money, right? Your VC rounds are usually 1.5 million or over. Um, and so what you're really competing against are angel investors, right? People who put in, you know, 200,000, 500,000. Um, you know, you can raise that on equity crowdfunding platform. Uh, the thing is though, is that <clears throat> there's really no limit to the number of investors that you could wind up with. Uh, in an equity crowdfunding platform. And I was kind of curious to find out what VCs would think of companies that came out and had 50 investors or 100 investors or even more. Uh, I mean, would they, would they want to get involved with companies that had that many shareholders and had public reporting requirements? So you do have to file if once you, for so long as you have, uh, crowdfunded shareholders in your company, you have uh, SEC reporting requirements. So it's almost like a public company. A little like bit. It's not, it, obviously not <clears throat> in depth, but. Yeah, we, we generally, we might refer to it as a reporting company, a public reporting company. Now, they're not, the reporting requirements aren't the same as a public yeah. company, uh, and they're not nearly as detailed, but they're still there. And so you have to publicly put, you know, financial information up there, depending on how much money you raise, possibly even audited financials. You would, you know, so VCs usually don't, you know, they don't like sharing the information about their portfolio companies and they keep it relatively restricted until they get a chance to sell it. And then they, you know, uh, cause that's when they cash out. Yeah. And well, and, <laughs> that's when they make their money. You know, and then there's always a fight about, you know, and, and the, the saying goes about how much you open the kimono, you know, about how, how much your future going to reveal. So. I think there's going to be like certain types of companies go down this route. Like you just said, pharmaceuticals. Imagine having a pharmaceutical company that has 100, 200, 300 different investors and they're just like, they just put in some money. They're just like, yeah, that drug should work. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know. So, I mean, it's just, I figure it's going to be for certain types of companies. I mean, more product companies that are coming out of Kickstarter, I would think that those types yes. of, um, some well, of these like tech companies, maybe like the Pebbles and all that kind well, of stuff. The principle's still the same. You still have to have a story and you need to be able to communicate the story. So I think services companies have a harder time communicating an effective story to people that says, that says, you know, this is what people need. This is what we're providing. 
And unless it's like a software as a service, um, if it's more of a, a general service, it's hard to tell an effective story that people want to invest in. Yeah. And, 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 and on Kickstarter, it's all about telling a story. It's all about getting yeah. your There's video the out there. Formulas, right? There's yeah. exactly what to say, how to say, uh, how, and, how your campaign has to go. And so I think, I think naturally this type of online investing, um, or even online donations works better for companies that have a specific product they're going to put out that, that can show a community need that's relevant and in the near term and not long term. It's, uh, you know, it's, it is going to be geared better towards certain types of companies. I could see it for like new uh, chain restaurants. <laughs> Just, uh, come on in and, and, and uh, you know, get some, give you some food and you're, I mean, you're buying the food and you're, uh... well, well, I mean, talk about spreading the risk. I mean, you know, just interesting. I mean, Kickstarter has been used very successfully by local restaurants, right? They, yeah. That they get people in their community to, to give them some money so that the restaurant can expand or do whatever to better serve the community. So what happens when these restaurants start selling shares of equity and, and are the costs worth it? I mean, there's, there's going to be some significant cost involved to go through one of these things, but it would be interesting to see like community owned restaurants. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. Rust, uh, in Middletown did it. You ever, you ever go there? Oh yeah. I go there all the time. Yeah. yeah. That's how they, uh, yeah. For their second expansion, you know how they've made the new room. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I believe they did a Kickstarter for that. Oh, they may have done one even to, uh, to get it up and running, but definitely for their expansion, they did a Kickstarter. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they were like, you know, you get pizza or, you know, get a kind of gift certificate for the, for the Kickstarter or something. So, yeah. But so, so your funding around, uh, you didn't seem to have too much trouble with that or was that, did that come from your network? I mean, is it, I guess it seems like from what you're saying is that everything that you built up is in Connecticut or you and the network, right? They always say your network is your net worth, right? So sure. is that something that you've leveraged to get the, the funding or? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I knew what I was good at and I knew what I wasn't good at. Right. And, uh, I, um, uh, I, I can, I can present, I can present the company. Um, but when it comes down to, it, I want to make the product and I want to make the best product I can. So I've, uh, I've instilled partners that are, um, are going out and helping me find the funding that I need, helping me, um, helping me communicate the message that uh, that I'm trying to communicate without me having to be so involved. So um, what we what we did was um, we presented a, a pretty good strategy. We showed that uh, that there's a market pull for this. So we went, we found uh, utilities interested. They said, yeah, we'll we'll test your product. And by the way, you know, in our small little municipal utility, there's uh, a thousand of these units that can go out. And right, so we found some some potential. Um, accredited investors that said this is a very interesting idea, um, and we took them to to the utility and we did a, a demonstration for them. And we said, "Look, this is the product that that we uh, that we're trying to build. We show that there's a, a market for it, and um, it's not that hard to close on investing if you can properly um, demonstrate that there are people uh, that that want to buy a product that you're trying to develop. Um, and then uh, we're doing the that in in kind of a, a broader sense right now where. Uh, I've now built the product. We're now about to install it into the field, and we're uh, lining up letters of intent uh, to show that people actually do want to purchase this product. But there's hurdles. We have to get uh, UL certification. We've we've got to um, pass ASME standards, uh, and then we've got to start to produce this in in a small scale. So we can't just you know have one off. So we're trying for our first batch of around ten, right? So. It's going to require a little bit more than, than our last round of funding, but should bring revenue into the company and, and demonstrate that people are willing to pay for it. So when I think when when you can bring in partners, which I've done, who are located here in Connecticut, which is why, you know, core reason I stayed that, know how to uh, present uh, uh, the, the correct strategy and path to building a, a company, 
and your network is has uh, individuals that uh, have the capability to invest, um, you're on a path for success. So uh, I'm just I consider myself lucky to have gotten and in, uh, into that network and now can include that as part of my network. So it's like you found so you obviously found the investors and what you, you basically did was show them the show bring them to the customer and say you know these are the guys that want to buy and right. they and they and they liked it and for you it, it seems like. Because a lot of uh, people seem to want to raise money, but they can't prove the product or they can't show it to them. Right. Um, so, I mean, it just seems for you, it, 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 it was easy in your mind or in the sense of because you can show them that people want to buy it, you know, like it was easy for, for the investors to be sold, right? Sure. So, um, I'll remove the word easy, right? Because yeah. it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not easy. Yeah. It's definitely not easy. And, uh, and there was definitely, uh, I put a lot of capital into to yep. make a, a, what you call like an MVP, right? A minimal viable yep. product. So I, um, I took a, you know, a year, year and a half, uh, my own money, you know, didn't work, built this MVP. So I said, okay, look, this proves out my concepts, you know, filed some patents, did all this, uh, legwork to, to get to this point. Um, you know, did uh, a, a lot of analytics to prove that there is a potential market for this. You know, you study the boiler markets, you do all this, and then you go out and, and you prove that, okay, um, with this investment, um, there are customers for it. And once you could do that, and then you show the market value of what you're trying to, to actually develop, um, it becomes easier to, to get uh, investor to say yes. Um, so it sounds as simple as go find a customer that wants to buy what you're you're looking for and you'll get a check. But there's a there's a lot of background yeah. that that happens. Oh, certainly, certainly. But but at the end of the day, like because we we've heard from people that it's hard to get find investors in Connecticut, right? So is your investor from Connecticut or yes? So so that being said, is is one of those things where again you obviously did a legwork to get there, right? Right. Obviously, everybody has to do that. You gotta you gotta put in the sweat equity. But once you have the product, if you if you have the MVP and somebody says yes, I want the next generation, right? And then, you know, investor says, you know, yeah, it works. So at the end of the day, um, seems like you had a, a good, a good journey with the fundraising path. You didn't have a, a bad experience with it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I would, I would agree with that. And again, it, it has to go back to, to network yeah. and, um, and the team you build. Um, I, you can't stress that enough. It's, it's the team you put together. Um, they have to be willing to believe in what you're doing and go out there and, and fight for it. So yep. how many uh, people you got working with you? So right now I, I have two core partners. I have um, uh, uh, several contract uh, employees. I have a one full-time engineer, and uh, hopefully in the next three to four months uh, we're bringing on a potential uh, COO, um, maybe two to three more engineers, uh, a technician. I now have two um, technical advisors, one for manufacturing, one for embedded circuitry. So. Um, I mean, we're we're gonna hopefully approach in the next six months, you know, a dozen people starting to surround this organization. Nice, that's great. Yeah. Now, is it the fact that Connecticut is is in the past a manufacturing state? Is that something that works in your your uh, kind of favor? Is it something that you look to kind of have your all your units manufactured here in the long run? Or? Um, so I, I would almost argue Connecticut is still a manufacturing state. <laughs> well, we are, but, we are. You got what I'm saying. But if you look at if you look at the the powerhouse of manufacturing that we once were, yeah, we we've come down a little bit. Yeah. But but you'll be shocked at the amount of of um, adaptation that's come out from the fact that we were such a large manufacturing yeah. state. So maybe we're not producing as much, but the talent that has come from the manufacturing is still out there. Yeah. I mean, you can you it is not difficult if you had an idea to say, how do I get this made to, to find the talent that yeah. that you need in Connecticut? Now, to go back to, are you going to manufacture this in Connecticut? Um, it's up for debate. Uh, I, I'm 
I would love to. Uh, I would like to assemble and test for sure. If you know, if ultimately Connecticut is our home base. Um, but uh, I, I personally, um, looking at some of the business models I want to go down, don't know yeah. if I want to be the manufacturer of this product. There's so many third-party manufacturers that that's what they do. That's what they do well. Yeah. Um, it, it, it really is going to depend um, what business model that we end up taking. And there's there's some research and development that uh, that we're, we're starting to look at that, that might determine that. Yeah. So um, I, I would like to say that, but... Um, it may go to a third party, and that third party may be out of state. So, Mike, when do you expect to have your first product in the market? Well, given that we've had a um, uh, an opportunity to redesign our, our turbine and actually increase the efficiencies of our system, um, we're, we're looking at um, uh, probably a 12-month period of running what, what we're building right now in the field uh, to, to validate the, the data. Um, and then right now, about six months to get our new prototype and another six months of testing that uh, turbine prototype. So we're looking potentially 12 to 14 months for offering a uh, certified product to sell. Great. That would be good. Do you have a, a kind of a cost that would go? Because I assume you're going after commercial, right? Right. Those are the ones that you're going. Right. Are you a certain type of um, company that you're looking for, kind of building that you're looking for to put install these on? Uh, so, you know, the... the, the Ideal candidate has a near continuous heat load, um, basically running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? A laundromat um, or a hotel that has a laundromat, um, you know, YMCA swimming pools, high school swimming pools, hotel swimming pools, uh, places that that are are using and generating a significant amount of heat. Um, that's where the, the largest economic uh, advantage is. Um, Long term, um, we're developing uh, these products to be adaptive to um, be incorporated with renewable energies and work uh, in tandem with that, right? So solar panels, uh, now batteries are starting to, to become, you know, uh, a buzzword, if you will, but uh, pretty effective because of the intermittents of, of what renewables are. Um, and our product is a complete complement of that and can, can um, add significant value. So it'll branch out past your 24-7 heating loads to anywhere that uh, requires heat um, and is looking to reduce, if not eliminate, um, you know, their electric bills. Uh, obviously, you can't eliminate yeah. the, the necessity for electrical demand, but, but um, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to branch out after that, and it's going to go to kind of anywhere there's heat. We're going to fit right into to the electric grid of the future, if you will. <laughs> so one question I always like to uh, ask people is, uh, you know, what, what new technology is interesting to you? What What are you using in your life? What's uh, or what's coming that that you're finding interesting? Man, that's that's a great question. I um, I guess I, I've been lately so focused on development of technology that I haven't been, <laughs> been used any of yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I haven't taken the time to um, to actually figure out what is going to streamline my life. Right? I, I, it's constantly people are like, why don't you just use this app or that? App? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, email works for me, text works for me, my phone works for me. If my phone can do those things, then, then that's it. But, um, yeah, I, I'd have to say I'm pretty uh, – I, I got, I think, Netflix to work on my phone while I was in the airport the other day, and that was pretty <laughs> exciting for me. <laughs> hey, so, so, yeah. so the answer is media streaming. Yes. Yeah, very yeah, good. Okay, stream, excellent. Yeah, yeah I, I – you know, there's one thing. When you're, when you're starting uh, a company that you're trying to make an impact, you eat – eat, breathe, sleep that. Um, and so I, I'm just really in the thick of it right now. I, I'm 
don't pay attention to too many other, you know, floating butterflies, as I'll call them. No, that's great. I, uh, you know, f- from my perspective, I, you know, I obviously work and deal with a lot of startup companies, and I'm always amazed by the range of ideas that are out there. Just, uh, again, um, was recently at the IQ incubator looking at the new class of companies coming through there and just shocked again. Uh, I think they had 77 applications this year. Um, and the, the, the range of ideas, uh, was all over the place. It just had everything. And, and they've got, uh, the school of nursing at UConn is now becoming more active in entrepreneurship and trying to develop technologies coming out of there related that they understand that hospitals and nurses need to keep keep activities and it's just there's just so many areas for it so i'm always curious to see what current innovators uh see as you know what they find interesting so okay to point to that um i took that as more tech uh maybe everyday life focused rather than uh, what's coming out in the pipeline i uh, recently came across um it was a consortium of universities that put together um how to model, um, how to do kind of finite element analysis, CFD analysis on um, our complete bodies. So everything from our tissue to our skeleton, um, our brain, our muscles. Um, and, and so we can, I mean, I mean there's a whole array that, uh, of different type of technologies that can be spun out into that. They're saying that it's, you know, the next uh, unicorn of a tech startup is going to start being in the, the actual, um, you know, molecule level uh, analysis of, hmm. of what our body is. And I, I found that completely fascinating. I mean, you know, you don't need the crash test dummies in, in your car anymore. You can now model, um, and that's just, that's just, for instance, one sure. aspect that you can now model uh, um, using these type of te- technologies. I found that completely fascinating. Oh, that's amazing. So they're uh, just trying to wrap my head around that. <laughs> so you're saying that they'd be able to model using... So you don't have to use crash test dummies. Why don't get that? <laughs> so, so okay. Uh, for you instance, explain that one. Yeah. For instance, um, let's say I was you know designing a building. Yeah. Right. Um, we have, from an engineering standpoint, been able to put into computer um, what happens if the wind is blowing yeah. at fifty miles an hour. Um, what happens, um, you know, if there's an earthquake, uh, and and what what it does is it looks at and it creates nodes all over the the, the design you have and knows how the material of that response to to yep. certain influences. And so what they've done um, is been able to put properties to, for instance, our skin or our muscles yeah. or our bone structure and been able to do it in a way that um, um, some are, you know, it's a summation of all these uh, different property materials that we can now uh, pinpoint different uh, influences and the effects that they will have. So it's something that hasn't been done uh, in the past, uh, and is now being being put together by by uh, I believe it's a nationwide uh, group of universities, and, and I found that just completely fascinating. Yeah, the medical medical tech that's going to be coming out in the next like ten years is I feel like it's going to be crazy. I mean, they say I mean, was it Ray Kurzweil said by twenty thirty uh, like nanobots in medicine like the, all day. So I mean, Ray Kurzweil has been pretty pretty good with his predictions over over uh, the years. I'm ready for nanobots to constantly be <laughs> be fixing me up. You know, I, that's that that sounds awesome. I I got to tell you, just on a, on a side note, I'm always amazed by the number of companies um, that we talk to that are focused on uh, disease prevention, like eliminating pathogens and bacteria in hospitals, for instance, you know, and so, so you sit through a number of, uh, new company startup idea presentations and like three or four of them throw out stats at you. Like there's, you know, 
You know, by this time a stethoscope touches its third person, it has, you know, four billion pathogens on it. And, you know, and you're, and so I go to the doctor's office the other day. I'm like, get that thing away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to a startup pitch. Yeah. Like, I know everything. Yeah. When, when, is, yeah. when is the last time you sanitized that? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, um, Oh, it's funny. I, I remember uh, we had Voda on here, uh, Sakura Water, and uh, you know, in, the, in their smart well drink machine. And uh, I remember from uh, Matt Kremen's, uh, their owner, his one of his very original early pitches for the product was was talking about how unsanitary, um, you, you know, I, I think uh, your average water dispenser is. And something that, that it carries more bacteria than, than like a public toilet after a day of activity. Ooh. And Ooh, so cool. it was, yeah, it was, it was a horrible right. statistic. So I was like, after that, I was like, yep, bottle water. Bottle water. <laughs> bottle That's water. why I'm so healthy. That's why I'm just, just always taking in the germs. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it's always, it's always amazing. So Mike, um, Anything else that you want to pass on to listeners, especially people here in Connecticut who are getting a start? What do you uh, What do you want to tell them? Oh man, uh, you know, especially if you're a um, an engineer switching to, to an entrepreneurial type role, is just go out, talk to as many people as possible. I do think it's possible here in Connecticut to to start a company of value that can grow, that can stay in Connecticut. Um, I think we're potentially going through some rough times as a state, but there's enough people that are trying to, to reverse that. Um, and, and it gives me um, a positive attitude to think that we can do it. We can do it here in the state. We just need to be vocal. And uh, I think we need to unite. You know, I mean, it's a reason I want to do this podcast because there's enough people going around saying, I want to be part of it. How do I participate? And you just do it by showing up, by listening, by sharing your thoughts. Um, and it's, uh, it's inspiring me to, to not want to potentially leave the state and stay here and, and try to grow this company here. So entrepreneurs of Connecticut unite. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> That's so great. Where, where can uh, people go and uh, check out your stuff? You got a website, you got social media. What? Um, yeah, it's, it's okay at the moment. Again, I'm focused more on, on the product, <laughs> but uh, Which is fine. yeah, yeah. So, um, our website is www.enviropowertec.com. E N V I R O. P-O-W-E-R-T-E-C dot com. Uh, and then, yeah, look us up on Facebook for EnviroPower. And uh, great. Appreciate uh, anyone coming and, and checking us out. Send, send us uh, some emails, and I'd love to get back to you. Is there a uh, contact form on your website that uh, if uh, a company is looking to potentially uh, have this? Yeah, absolutely. Just info at EnviroPowerTech.com. All right, cool. Eric, where can people get a hold of us? So they can go to ctstartup.com. Uh, uh, we got the CT Startup uh, podcast on Facebook as well, and the CT Startup cast on uh, Twitter. And I believe also uh, we can find this on uh, SoundCloud and SoundCloud iTunes. And iTunes, yes. And Stitcher? Stitcher, yes, you can. And any of your other local uh, podcast providing apps, I believe so. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah, we're on a couple of them now. Yep, we're, we're everywhere. Yeah, yeah, we're like blowing but up. But mainly CT. Yeah, well, if you we're we're everywhere as long as you look a little bit hard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, actually, actually, it's interesting. We have a, we have some people from overseas. Actually, our first listen ever on SoundCloud was from uh, Washington State. Oh no okay. way! Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's pretty cool. Coast the, to coast. Yeah, the power of uh, stats on these websites. You can see who's uh, listening. Awesome. I, I always like to think there are some uh, Connecticut uh, Connecticut expats. Yeah, th- that are out there and. 
and getting a piece of their entrepreneur home. Yeah, yeah. They, they're just like, ah, I want to move back so bad. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Talk to everybody soon. You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Kevin Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Martha Kalina, LLP.